0: Resuming debate, resuming debate, resuming debate. Hi everyone. Welcome back to resuming debate. It's great to be with you today. A lot of my parliamentary work relates to international development and and foreign policy. Uh, And I've been thinking a lot about Africa, especially in the last year. A couple of reasons why I think Africa is extremely important uh, as we consider Canada's foreign policy and the future of the the world that that will be in the decades ahead. First of all, Africa has a a very young population. If you look at uh, median age, uh, Canada's median age, as as well as that of most uh, Western countries, is in their 40s. Most African countries have median ages in the teens, which means much younger populations. And that means that Africa's population will continue to grow and shape the world uh, in various ways. The other important, I think, thing to think about in terms of Africa is in the midst of, of Africa's population and economic growth, it is uh, kind of a field where where both of the poles in the global competition we're seeing are trying to have an influence. So we're seeing escalating uh, global competition between Western powers on the one hand and authoritarian revisionist powers like, like Russia and China. And a lot of where that competition is being waged, where both sides are trying to gather more influence, is in Africa. So uh, if, if you think about how in elections we, we tend to pay attention to the swing states, the states or the voters that are in the middle. You could say that that African countries are are in many cases swing states uh, in this uh, in this world of uh, of increasing uh, global uh, competition. Uh, so I wanted to have this episode where we just discuss Canada-Africa relations, some of the economic opportunities, but the other uh, issues as well. Uh, and here's some some good perspectives on. Uh, why Africa is important uh, and what Canada needs to do to engage more with Africa. So uh, I'm joined today by uh, by two excellent guests, Mr. Sebastian uh, Spio-Garbra. Uh, he is the former chair of the Canada-Africa Chamber of Business. Uh, he's a Canadian uh, who, who works on Canada-Africa business relations, especially. Sebastian, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you very
0: much. And also uh, pleased to be joined by... Uh, Lawrence Songa. Uh, Lawrence uh, is uh, is not a Canadian, although he he knows Canada and has spent time here. He is a member of Parliament in Uganda, representing the Ora County area. Lawrence, thank you for joining us as well. Thank you. Let's dive right in, and maybe Sebastian, you can uh, you can answer this first one here uh, on on the economic side. I think. When a lot of people think of Africa, they go to the stereotype of poverty. And there is still poverty in Africa, that's a reality, uh, but there's also a great deal of opportunity for trade and investment that is, mm-hmm. that is mutually beneficial. Uh, so how do you push back on some of the stereotypes that exist and how should we, we see this reality of both, yes, continuing need for development assistance, but also opportunities for trade and investment?
1: I I think um, in in a certain sense, um, if anything, the last three years have maybe brought into stark relief the fact that those two dichotomies can exist at the same time. So you could have, for instance, a country as wealthy and as uh, technologically advanced as China, all all of a sudden deal with an outbreak of illness that supposedly came from, you know, uh, probably around uh, meat markets or or animal uh, markets, so to speak. You saw how in the ensuing days, great and mighty nations like Italy, like the United States, grappled with COVID. So many people were dying, if you recall. Um, And obviously in Canada, we didn't have as heavy an outbreak as we did in some other countries. But we also saw what happened in India, um, that India also had a tough time initially grappling with COVID. And ironically, ironically, be, beyond anybody's imagination, it, it, it's still something that is a, a miracle to, to put it in almost uh, uh, religious terms. Africa somehow dealt with COVID much, much, much better than most other countries in the world. And I haven't seen enough papers written on this. And I think there was, there's something there that um, the stereotypes that we have, even those of us in the international development space have, that um, largely Africa needs help. Africa needs help, whether the help is trade, or the help is aid, or the help is some other type of help. We realize that Africa obviously needs partnerships and it needs collaborations, but that the economic situation, the reality of the economic situation in Africa is very variegated, very and that in some respects, in certain areas, for instance, as an example in the area of uh, mm-hmm. you know money, financial technology and mobile money transfers, etc, Africa is way ahead of Canada. I mean, Canada has one of the highest, as you know, as a member of Parliament, Canada has one of the highest costs for telephony and for internet and for telephone services. And it's very clunky, um, as opposed to in Kenya or Uganda or Nigeria, where you can pay, you know, your grocery bill or you can pay your gas bill from your cell phone. It's something that I don't think Canadians can even contemplate yet so yes in in many respects i think that there are structural challenges clearly of education of healthcare, of roads infrastructure clearly absolutely but their africa story is a much more complex one and in some respects i would say that um, we in canada or in the west broadly speaking um, want a one-size-fits-all sort of approach Because it's just easier. We don't have the manpower at Global Affairs or in CEDA or EDC to really deal with all the different variegations of development in Uganda or in Madagascar or in Ghana. So we tend to have broad brush uh, policies, which obscures and misses major uh, points. So I think the long and short of the answer is that, yes, Africa continues to have I'm not one of those who believes that we should be Pollyannish about the developmental challenges in Africa. I mean, you just have to drive an hour hour out of Lagos or an hour out of Accra or an hour out of Kampala and you would see in stark relief the situation. So even in Johannesburg, an hour out of Johannesburg. But I do think that uh, the the difficulty for Western policy um, is how to Um, engage Africa in a way that is meaningful. And I think this is where, to pivot to your introduction, this is where the Chinese, and to a lesser degree, the Russians have done a much better job because I think they have a much more sophisticated view, especially the Chinese, of the different opportunities and risks within Africa. And I think that their policies are targeted more at those silos, so to speak, whereas I think that um, for ideological and historical reasons, it's much harder for the Western countries to pivot away from the shibulets, the paradigms that mm-hmm. we've set for ourselves on Africa. Mm.
0: Thank you for that very comprehensive answer, Lawrence. Do you want to uh, maybe weigh in on the same point? Uh, how do you think some of these? these stereotypes or perceptions of kind of poverty dominating the landscape in Africa are, are limiting uh, engagement and what are the things that, uh, that people in the West, Canada and other Western countries uh, need to know and understand about the, uh, the economic and other opportunities associated with engagement?
2: I want to thank you for the invitation and uh, I'm also grateful that I'm able to participate Uganda and Canada established a diplomatic uh, relation in 1962. There had been a lot of cooperation with, the, with Canada, between Canada and Uganda. Canada export to Uganda amounts to about $34 million, but import from Uganda is about 17 So there is still a gap. And if you look at the GDP, uh, for us, we are talking about uh, Only 54 Canada is talking about beyond 2,000. Mm -hmm. These are real scenarios. But what is important is we have some opportunities we can explore between Canada and Uganda, much as Uganda's economy not developed, but we have resources that can be exploited to the advantage of both countries. And I'm happy we are able now to export even agricultural produce to Canada. And Uganda being an agriculture economy and where majority of the people are farmers, unfortunately, most of them are smallholder farmers, we can have cooperation in strengthening agriculture. And if we can strengthen agriculture, that is the backbone of the Uganda's economy. And if we can have exports of those agricultural produce we shall be able to sell at higher market, I mean at higher price. But number two, if we can also establish processing facilities so that we can do some value addition of those perishable agricultural sector, and that will require good transport system, but also good energy access, which should be really strong, but also affordable for the population. So, in the areas of uh, agriculture, I think that's a, one area where we can really cooperate. But Canada has been assisting Uganda for a very long time in the area of uh, education, research. But we just need to, to, to scale up that kind of cooperation so that uh, uh, we can develop uh, both economies. Another wealth we have is in the areas of minerals. Now that powers around the world are trying to see how they can exploit minerals, especially the critical ones, which unfortunately are found mostly in Africa. In the areas of minerals, especially the critical minerals, we have potential of actually generating about $12 billion. And that is an area where we need a lot of capacity building, areas where we need access to energy, areas where we need access to transport and skilled labor force. So that is one area of cooperation that we can strengthen between Canada and Uganda. And we are also grateful that Canada, in most of the issues that had been taking place in Africa, Canada had been apparently neutral in most of the, 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 the issues. And so, for us, we don't have any reservation working with Canada because we have not got any, any, any signal that Canada got involved in some issues, maybe the conflict in the region. So that is a very good strength, a strong point, which we can also build on so that we can work in this kind of cooperation.
0: Those are those are great points. I was just in Kenya last week, and it sounds like in terms of agriculture, certainly the situation is very similar between Uganda and yeah. Kenya, where uh, large numbers of, of smallholder farmers who are looking to uh, increase their yields, access uh, value-added, and export opportunities – you know, I, I certainly got the sense that uh, there are times of year where there's there's great abundance, and that means uh, very low food prices for farmers. So, being able to do value-added export, uh, and selfishly, we need to get we need to get as many mangoes from East Africa to Canada for uh, <laughs> for our enjoyment. Because, from what I understand, during the mango harvesting season, the prices are so incredibly low compared to what we pay in Canada, and and the mangoes. Yeah. Uh, Magos in East Africa are phenomenal. So, uh, that's, that's a bit of a digression, but, uh, but But anyways, uh, Sebastian, if you can maybe pick up on the on the point just about about specific sectors that that Lawrence was talking about uh, agriculture, energy, Canada's economy has has uh, had as a major part of it, uh, resource resource production and and export. Does this make uh, partnerships around uh, around agricultural energy exploitation, uh, uh, potentially particularly fruitful, which where do you see the, the most promise there? I
1: I think, I mean, um, in the past, uh, you've obviously had uh, most of the engagement, most of the commercial engagement between Canada and Africa has been around the extractive sector. So, um, mining companies, energy companies, Um, so in a certain sense, Canada's engagement with Africa has often come through, you know, engagement with companies that are based out in out west, um in 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 the in the in the prairies and also on the Quebec uh, uh, side. And then you obviously have the TSX, which is um, the largest uh, market globally for companies and individuals and entities looking to uh, raise money for mining and extractives. Um, so I would say probably, 70 80 percent of all the engagement between canada and africa on a commercial basis have generally been around these obviously there's also historically um some engagement around bombardier and um, and as a big and major uh, player in the infrastructure space ironically canadian banks i mean if if i was in your shoes one of the questions i would ask uh, raised in the parliament would be Canadian banks. Canadian banks are wholly missing from Africa. I mean, it's, it is something that is very biz- bizarre and mysterious why um, you have you can't find a single major transaction in, in any African country from South Africa all the way to Morocco. <laughs> I mean, where you have RBC, CTD bank, BMO, engage in Africa. So it's a very strange area of a lacuna, a kind of a gap in the market that I think could be quite interesting, because honestly, for the small and medium-sized businesses in Canada, which dominate the Canadian uh, business landscape, to be able to engage properly with Africa, you need financial intermediation and financial support. So assuming that um, in a Brother Lauren Songer's district. You know there's a, a, a farmer there who is looking to export a particular product to a grocery chain in 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 uh, in uh, Saskatchewan or in Alberta or someplace. You know, who would finance that transaction? How will it be actually uh, implemented? And this is where I think, again, going back to the success that the Europeans, uh, generally speaking, and the asian especially the chinese are increasingly having in africa and this is a mistake by the way i used to for many years advise a lot of japanese companies in their business dealings in africa and it's also a mistake the japanese made the japanese never really uh, they had um you know jogmeg and jogmac and all these other state-owned entities that dealt with their countries but they never had Sumitomo, toshiba you know um, the large Japanese banks open branches anywhere in Africa, and if you look at uh, the last hundred years or so of um, you know European engagement in Africa, whether you look at Societe Generale or you look at Barclays Bank or Standard Chartered Bank or Standard Bank, I mean these were the banks that underpinned the relationship between Africa and Europe. Um, so I I would say that if I was you know, uh, I, I mean, to give any unsolicited advice to our French uh, uh, right honorable Pierre-Polivier or, you know, yourself, or, I mean, uh, even the prime minister, uh, right honorable prime minister, I would say, I, I would target the Canadian banking system mm. and say, you know what, how much of your risk capital, how much of your engagement, even if it's 2%, even if it's 3%, even if it's just 4%, How much of it is dedicated to Africa? And I don't think any risk analysis that is honest done in the boardroom of any of those banks can justify why there's almost zero engagement by any of these banks in Africa. Um, It just doesn't make any sense. Um, So to me, I think that that predates all the actual projects, solar projects, uh, renewables, uh, agriculture, all these wonderful projects without financing can't really take off. Uh,
0: thank you for that. That's that's very interesting. And I want to I want to come back to your point about how kind of large institutions do risk analysis and whether they do it in a in a way that's that's objective or reflects certain biases. But um, but before that, uh, Lawrence, I'll, I'll go to you if you want to if you want to comment at all on the on the banking relationship issue. I also wanted to probe further your comment about um, about Canada being perceived as neutral uh, because it seems to me that that many other western countries certainly european countries have a colonial history uh, in africa and that carries with it you know baggage memories of uh, memories of, of injustice uh, and canada does not have that same history so does that position us differently in our engagement uh, because uh, because we don't have that uh, that past colonial presence
2: To start on the issue of financial institution or banking, agree with the points Sebastian raised, because it is really important. If we are to do business, we must have financial services that can aid that business. And uh, I think I really want to agree there. And on the neutrality, definitely, like you explained, Canada does not have any history or colonial history with Africa. But this is the opportunity. That Canada should use to to cooperate, but also to empower uh, a country like Uganda or some developing countries. For example, if you take uh, uh, my region, grows a lot of Arabica. At one time, we were exporting those small quantities to Canada, but we still have no market for that good coffee. So, if we can promote coffee, it can empower the farmers. But, number two, the export to Uganda. Of Canada being about uh, 33 or 34 million dollars and this would call for encouraging some of those industries to come and establish themselves on the the African soil where the labor force is actually areas where we can actually uh, uh, cooperate. In terms of education most of let's say Ugandan students or African students have been coming uh, uh, to Canada although one one area where they how to access can but that can be strengthened
0: also sebastian you talked about the risk analysis that large institutions do and there's an issue of, of risk analysis that that investors uh undertake but there's also an issue of comfort and familiarity and if mm-hmm. you if you haven't been present in an area for a long time then you're going to perceive that area as being more risky because you just don't know whereas it may be that there are areas which are, which are of higher risk where investors, uh, pension funds, uh, banks are just more comfortable operating because they've, they've been there for a while. I think, you know, for instance, you, you compare a, a risk analysis around investing in Africa versus investments in China. There's a tendency to, for, to see a lot of potential in China and and to invest less in Africa. Um, and yet there are big risks associated with China and there are big potential opportunities in Africa. So what is your message to to institutional investors, to banks just about how they do these these risk analyses and uh, and whether they're being done objectively or not?
1: Thank you, my my own uh, day, daily prof- profession. Is I'm a political risk analyst, and I've been doing this for almost 20 years. That's sort of my uh, my actual uh, profession. So I deal with this <laughs> with this matter almost on a daily, uh, regular basis. I think part of it is a death of information. So if, for instance, you ask yourself, uh, the average banker in Toronto or the average corporate executive in Montreal, how much do they know about what's going on in Africa? And the part of the problem is on our side <clears throat> as Africans, because we have 54, 55 countries, depending on how you count them. And I deal with the ambassadors in Ottawa all the time, I'm friends with many of them, I've worked with many of them on so many things. And yet the problem is that if we have 18 voices or 36 voices or 42 voices on Africa. You know, Togo is writing a letter to BMO and Burundi is writing a letter to BMO and Uganda is writing a letter to BMO. It's not going to yield much results, but you can imagine a scenario where the African countries um, represented in Ottawa, and I'm talking here specifically about engagement in Canada, came together and said, look, let's finance a campaign to educate um, Canadian businesses and Canadian institutions about what's going on in Africa, to sort of invite the chairman of you know, some of these banks or some of these big organizations to an event where we ask what is their thinking about Africa, what are their concerns, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that part of the challenge, part of the, the ease with China or India is that you are dealing with one government. Or Brazil, you are dealing with one major government. They may have more staff in Ottawa, maybe, I don't know, but it's entirely possible that China may have 15 people in Ottawa and maybe 20 in Toronto who every day are dealing with commercial activity and commercial issues that deal with China, right? But in the embassy of Togo, you might have one, the embassy of Ivory Coast, you might have one, the embassy of Ghana, you might have two, the embassy of Nigeria, you might have two, the embassy of South Africa, you may have three. And in aggregate, we may all have more commercial offices in aggregate, but because everyone is selling their own story and their story in a grand scheme of things are quite small compared to the markets that, say, China or India would have, um, I think that it makes the dissemination of information very difficult. So part of the risk bias, I don't think it's because the risk analyst or the banks or the pension funds have an inherent negative bias towards Africa. But if I'm a, I'm at Case Depot or I'm at Ontario Teachers Pension Fund and I wake up in the morning and I have a thousand different things, interest rates are moving left, right and center, currencies are moving left, right and center, you know, maybe I have a headache, maybe my kid <laughs> was screaming in my ears at, overnight, uh, et cetera, et cetera. If I get to my desk and there are two delegations, and there's one from Brazil or one from India telling me all the different bonds in India Ontario the entire teacher's pension can invest in and um, the sovereign risk guarantee of the Indian government, et cetera, et cetera. And then I have, you know, Togo and Uganda and Ghana also looking to raise something for an infrastructure project it's more likely than not with my limited time, I probably would go to those ones where I think I can get more out of it. So even at a functional level, in terms of pooling um, resources, for instance, why can't we have the SADEC region, the Southern African Development Corporation area, or the West Africa ECOWAS region, issuing a bond that helps to build the road from Lagos all the way to Dakar? Why can't we have... Maybe a bond issue by the east african community that is as an internationally subscribed bond that helps to um, finance the railway line from mombasa into kampala so to me i think that the the newer generation of african uh, professionals and those of us who have had the privilege of working in a number of these places we have to begin to radically um leverage uh, sort of the regional um, networks to solve the problems. And I am a big believer that, yes, we can have particularized foreign policies or particularized national policies on different things. But I think that in our engagement with foreign uh, entities. so when Africa is dealing with Europe or Africa is dealing with Canada, my sense is that, Um, the different countries working in silos tends to exacerbate this risk problem. Because to give you a final example, and I'll stop talking here, let's say I'm the government of Congo or I'm the government of, say, Uganda. Let's say Uganda, since uh, our brother Ugandan is on the line. Um, And I'm trying to raise financing for a project in Uganda. But I go into the room and the analyst or the financier says, but there's some little war going on in Eastern Congo. And I see that Eastern Congo is on the border of Uganda. And I I know that this particular project may be in the Lake Victoria region, which may affect Uganda, what do you say, you may not have much to say that would convince him. But you can imagine if for instance, you're doing a project in Uganda, which abuts, you know, these countries, and we had a more regional approach in terms of infrastructural development infrastructural financing so in that same room when that question is asked by the pension fund the ugandan would defer to his congolese colleague and say okay maybe you answer this question um that is my, been my experience of almost 20 years of dealing with these political uh, risk perception issues that a lot of the time the investor doesn't have the time, or the resources, or the information uh, necessary.
0: Thank you. That's. I think that's that's very revealing. We. I think we're starting to see, as you say, some of this this happening. I mean, obviously, there's the there's the African Free Trade Deal. There's the the African Union. Uh, Lawrence, I wonder if you want to uh comment on this question as well of uh this issue that sebastian's raised about regional collaboration regional institutions uh engaging together to to attract investment do you do you see this as being a helpful trend and is it something that we're going to see more of
2: i agree with the point sebastian raised the regional uh, initiatives are very good for also regional cooperation because uh Uh, If you take in terms of uh, conflict in the region, like in the DRC, in Central Africa Republic, in in Chad, if we use the regional approach, it will bring together all stakeholders in the different countries and to cooperate on a particular project. And that will be a uniting factor. I think I want to agree with, with, with Paul. The reason why China is having a big presence in Africa is because they are focusing on the things that are burning to the local population, like the road infrastructure, the, the, the health, the health facilities in the rural areas, because this cooperation, let's say from the Western one, in most cases it is not direct; it is through another, another international organization. That is so a challenge because uh, a country like Uganda is not getting it directly; they have, it must come through another entity. But if we can have direct cooperation with these countries and on regional projects like infrastructure connecting, maybe working on the road from Uganda up to Juba in South Sudan, that will make it very strong. And therefore, China is having presence in Africa because they are focusing on infrastructure and they are giving high interest loans. But Africa has no alternative where to run for soft loans. So if if countries like Canada can come in and give alternatives to those issues that are driving China, China for example, in Africa, definitely African governments will will cooperate with China on some of those issues. But why they run to China is because they don't have alternative. And yet, in the long run, that loan is going to be extremely expensive. To African countries. So I agree. Regional projects, uh, cross-border projects, are very good, but. Areas of infrastructure are very key, areas of water, uh, sun, uh, water and health care are very key to the public.
0: Thank you. Lawrence, I want to drill further specifically now onto this issue of uh, China's engagement in Africa. The, the picture that you're painting is China comes offering proposed solutions to durable problems like access to infrastructure. They do so at a high price, uh, but uh, Africa, many African countries don't have that alternative. Many people perceive China's engagement in Africa as being strategic, as being about defending and advancing their interests and, and potentially in an exploitive way. This appears to have led to a bit of a divide between sort of what everyday people perceive uh, and what um, political elites or, or maybe business leaders on the continent perceive of, of China's role. How, how is China's presence perceived and, and, uh, and concretely, how do we offer that, that alternative?
2: Alternative is one, and this is something I've been talking about for some time.
0: We, we must address the
2: issues that are driven. 54 African countries, or oh, it's a good number of African countries, we must address those issues that are driven to China. Nobody will go to those high-interest loans, and these are areas of infrastructure, because their focus is infrastructure. We know, we, and, 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 and elections, if you look at elections in Africa, any, any community that requires a road. if you don't do it, you cannot win election in that area. Now China said if you need money we have another thing is the additionalities for that particular loan. While China focus is on interest rate and maybe some few other conditions, the, the loan from the develop, uh, from the Western world, tend to have a long list to build maybe a health facility for women. You don't need to have long conditions for it. Just focus on that. China focuses on few conditions, which is driving some of these African countries because uh, they, 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 they don't want to put you at a fix. But in the long run, you know that whatever you are signing for is going to be a disaster to your people. If the people need roads, you buy roads. So if we can address, if the one especially can address those things that have driven African governments, China, it is not going to help us in Africa. Mm-hmm. Th-
0: thank you for that. Uh, I-, I think uh, Western loans are are associated with a greater degree of, or forms of Western support, a greater degree of conditionality, and and there are long term challenges with what China is doing. For the interests of African countries, but there are such urgent short-term needs that are uh, that are driving, uh, yeah. uh, you know, a need to respond. Sebastian, what's what's your reaction to to those comments? I guess this builds on your your comments about financial engagement. But mm-hmm. is it is it realistic for Canada to play a role in offering Africa alternatives in terms of uh, supporting accessing infrastructure? The the kinds of of reasonable, accessible loans that allow economic development to, uh, to take place. And is, is there a desire for that alternative?
1: I think, I think there's a desire for the alternative. Um, But I think that also the capacity and financial constraints, uh, of the Canadian government requires that probably, um, the Canadian government continues to work with, uh, investments through the African development bank, which I know Canada has put some money in, and also probably the African Finance Corporation and other multilateral agencies that are working, um, you know, already in Africa to support uh, trade and investment. The the problem, unfortunately, with most of those large institutions is that they tend to support large projects, generally speaking, not small-scale business. I mean, uh, projects and 80% plus of all the business activity in Canada is a small, medium sized uh, com- companies. Um, so there's an asymmetry between all the money that's being pumped by Western donors and Western companies into the African Development Bank and all the Africa Exim Bank and AFC, all of which institutions I know quite well and I support. And the actual reality of how do you get somebody in your constituency in Saskatchewan uh, who is a a medium-sized company, maybe they have 15, 20 employees. How do you actually get that person to begin to see Africa as a potential market for whatever widgets they are producing in Saskatchewan? Or maybe it's a farmer exporting wheat or exporting grain or exporting... Um you know, chickens or sporting you know meat whatever whatever it is that is the principal economic activity there, how do you get that person to to connect to a constituent in Lawrence's district who wants to buy that product? That transaction may not be more worth more than two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. and clearly, I mean, and again, I'm being very generous here. Um, so, assuming that you have a transaction between a small, medium-sized company in Saskatchewan, in Yorkton or in Buffalo Narrows, or in you know, Saskatoon, and a company in Lawrence's district, and let's say the volume of that over one year period is even $250,000, let us say they do five $50,000 know, transactions. My question is, there are very few institutions, either on the Canadian side or on the African side, who support such a person. And yet 80% of all the total volume of business activity, both in Lawrence's district and in your district is at that level. So in a certain sense, if Canada is not going to be able to uh, attack that problem and is going to play at the larger level, at the infrastructure level, then clearly I think that some um, investments through these established institutions with some strings attached in terms of buying some of the implements from Canada using Canadian technology, using Canadian expertise, Canadian financing would be interesting. So I, I think that in a certain sense, the Canadian government, both at the political level and at the institutional, um, permanent, you know, level, has yet to decide in a decisive way what the thrust of engagement with Africa would be. the Prime Minister Harper, I think there was a lot of discussion about um, sanitation and hygiene and uh, w- uh, wash, you know, all these uh, programs that we're looking at. Um, health care related issues. Then in the early part of the Prime Minister Trudeau administration, we're dealing with women and gender issues and gender empowerment and women's empowerment issues. A lot of the money went into advocacy. Um, and in these latter parts, I think there's a lot more discussion on trade, etc. But there's a little bit of a scattered approach in terms of what we need to do um and where the focus has to be so i would say that a lot of the average african business men and women gravitate more quickly to china more quickly to dubai more quickly to turkey turkey has become the major player in business because it's much easier for them to with their fifty thousand dollars or forty thousand dollars go buy the products there um so i think that we have hopefully in Um, You know, the next government, uh, if um, the conservatives were to emerge victorious, a real serious realignment and reimagining of of the relationship with Africa. The last thing I'll say is that you are completely 100% correct that Africa is a swing geopolitical entity in this new world order where you have... Um, you know, the West on one side and Russia and China and others on the other side. And I think that if you see what is happening to France in in Burkina Faso, in Mali, Mm -hmm. in Guinea, it's very concerning because that tells you that a major part of the Western alliance is losing its foothold, its interest, its capacity in Africa. And I think that um, for us to engage from Canada with this swing region, we have to come to the table with more concrete uh, plans. Yeah. Uh, it, pass it, here.
0: yeah, yeah. Just just quickly picking up on that. I mean, and I think it's it's good that we we mentioned sort of the 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 French government's ongoing complicated relationship, to say the least, with countries in French West Af- West Africa, like the the West's argument is that it stands for freedom, democracy, and the rule of law uh, in opposition to China and Russia. Uh, but, but my sense is that, uh, unfortunately, the, the way the West may be perceived in a lot of Africa is not so much associated with freedom and democracy because of, because of the colonial history. And in fact, because of um, you know, continuing uh, issues with French policy, for example, is that, is that part of the problem? And, and do we need to take a hard look at ourselves and say, how do we, how do we truly be countries that stand for, for freedom and democracy, make a decisive break with, with past practices if, if we're going to actually have a, a constructive relationship?
1: I, th- I think the short, the short answer is that you can't eat democracy. You cannot okay. pay school fees with freedom. People need to pay their school fees and people need to eat food and People need to have jobs. So I think that the vast majority of Africans, whether they're in Kampala or in Lagos or in Accra or in Dakar, yes, they may like democracy. Yes, they may like freedom. But at the end of the month, tomorrow is the 1st of February. Every family on earth, especially in Africa, is Uh thinking about their bills. And what about jobs? What about... So I think that most people... Um, and it's not that they are opposed to democracy, but in their hierarchy of values, their Maslow's hierarchy of values, democracy and freedom is not number one or number two or number three.
0: Yeah. Lawrence, what do you think about that?
2: Just maybe to add on what uh, Sebastian said, I hope for that. If you look at the amount of money that came from Canada to Uganda, it's a lot, auto other African countries. It's too much. But the local person is not aware that Canada has been uh, helping their communities. The money on paper is so big, the amount of money on paper is so big, but it doesn't reach the grassroots population or not even aware. If you talk about Ukraine and Russia, people in my village, women and children, young people, they even don't know anything about that. What they want is... They want to They their saving groups. They want to do their businesses. They want good health care. They want water. So you don't need to punish the population. The president or someone is having a diversion view. And that can only be done if you deal with small scale that are working the grassroots. In my constituency, I have 400 villages with 1,200 groups. And we are supporting them through the Songa Community Foundation to women, integrated games and sport for young people. How the big fans, uh, what the big fans, the international community is talking about, where it is going. For us, we are with them, with the little resources we have, so that we can empower them in businesses. The, basically, I want to agree with that position. And then maybe the last thing is, if the African young people can interact with young people in Canada and so on, and also, some leaders can 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 also have kind of uh, uh, dialogues and discussion. Canadian children can also know about Africa. Africa can also know about Canada. But at the same time, uh, it can promote opportunities, uh, identification of opportunities on both sides. Thank you.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you. And and. Uh, I... This hour has just just flown by. One area we could go, we probably don't have time to really delve into it, is is the issue of visa access in Canada. Because my sense is that one of the challenges is that it's very difficult for people from Africa to get to get a visa, uh, and that's also an impediment for people that want to come and do business. And um, yeah. so.
2: Yes, I want to be happy. That is one of the conditions I was talking about, even for London So on business. It is very easy not even to go just to send the passport to the Embassy of China in, in Kampala and get visa to go and buy these things. He has his own money, but now because our society is not so formal. What
0: what, what we're getting uh, is there are there are significant challenges for getting visas to Western countries that that don't exist in the case of of traveling to China uh and that's another impediment to to yeah. building understanding and attracting uh attracting investment and just just like one one quick question yes. and then we'll go to sort of closing closing comments for me is i'm not i'm not one of these people that spends a lot of time studying cryptocurrency but uh, i i do think it's there's some interesting applications in terms of uh cross border relationships uh that it uh, it does allow smaller transactions for, from one side of the world to the other uh you know using the potential associated with uh with blockchain technology more more broadly and within that cryptocurrency that's that 's not that 's not to express an opinion about any particular kind of cryptocurrency, but just to say that the technology is there that that we do see potential for more cross border interactions do do one of you want to just briefly comment on on whether on whether there's the potential for for this or other new payments technologies to to make it easier for to have the kind of small business to small business or people to people economic interactions between uh, Canada and African nations.
1: I I think one area where um, <laughs> I haven't seen it yet, but it could be interesting, would be leveraging technology with Pesa and um, you know the payment system for people to lend money across the border person to person Mm -hmm. business to business so what i mean is that let's say there is a a business in 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 mr songa's district which has five thousand one thousand extra dollars and they could put it in a bank or they could lend it to a business in tanzania that needs one thousand dollars so far, we have a very a colonial banking system. The, the banks of Tanzania are regulated by Tanzania. The banks of Uganda are regulated by Uganda. There's very little cross-border financial flows because to, to change from Pula into, you know, Kwanzaa into CD into Naira is too complicated. Um, but I think that whoever is able to do that will become a multi-multi billionaire. How do you lend money across borders? Because at different times of the year, maybe there's a, a, a big um, a coffee uh, a harvest in one part of, of of Africa, and at the same time, there is a, a huge planting season happening in another part of Africa at the same time. And you have these seasonal issues. And at one point, one group needs money for fertilizer. At another point, another group has a lot of money that they've put in a Ponzi scheme or in a local savings and loans, which has gone bankrupt. So I think that if we get eventually down to what Mr. Songa described of supporting local businesses, in a serious way we have to figure out ways for that local business if he can't or she can't access financing locally in the local district and cannot access it nationally in the national district they can access it in internationally half of all of the development in canada the money comes from the united states i mean almost all the money that has been raised into major infrastructural projects in canada comes from the united states Most of the money that is raised for most infrastructural and business projects in Canada come from China or Japan. But at that level, it's very easy for a guy in Silicon Valley to go to Japan and raise $10 million for a venture. And without cross-border flows, easy cross-border flows, most of what we now call Western civilization would, would have ceased to exist. And in a certain sense... We are sitting, Africa is not a poor continent. Africa is very rich. But the problem is that we are not able to trade amongst ourselves. The roads are terrible. We are very, it's up until about 15 years ago, we could not even communicate with each other. The the cost of uh, communication was impossible. Up until uh, uh, Ethiopian Airways and uh, Kenyan Airways and a few others started doing very good we could not even travel within Africa. And I'm adding another aspect that we should be able to lend to each other within Africa. Um, and that would really uh, open up major capacities. And so the technology, I agree, blockchain technology could assist with that. But so far, the regulatory requirements in each country have made that impossible. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's really fascinating um, perspective in terms of where the potential is, where the opportunities are, and the role of, of I mean, physical infrastructure we've talked about, but also economic infrastructure. This has been a great conversation. I'll give the last word to both of you to wrap up, and and this just, um, I'll just say on my end, this this just underlines my my belief in the potential for, of Africa. My sense that that strengthening the relationship provides. Uh, just an immense amount of opportunity. But I, I'd love to hear any final thoughts from you on what, what steps we need to take uh, to strengthen the relationship between Canada and various countries in Africa uh, and how to really leverage this opportunity for, uh, for Africa's prosperity, but also for, for the benefit of, uh, of Canada and Canadians. This kind of conversation and dialogue should continue to have
2: engagements of more stakeholders to see which strategies used in this kind of cooperation, Having frequent dialogues like this, a small group discussion, uh, see a way forward for this, because we want direct uh, direct uh, cooperation with the small
0: businesses. Yeah, great, thank you. Sebastian. Well, I'll
1: just say thank you again, uh, Ryan Noble, uh, genius, and uh, also, Uh, Right Honorable Songa, for this conversation. It's a privilege to join you to discuss um, Africa. And I hope and pray that um, as, you know, policies are being discussed and developed in Ottawa, some of these ideas will begin to uh, penetrate more deeply into that. But um, I I do have no doubt in my mind that this century is is, is a century where Africa Um, can again begin to rise in a very serious way. And I think that um, whatever Canada can do to be part of this would also be very beneficial to Canada's long-term economic stability uh, to diversify its markets and to diversify its uh, sources of economic stability. So thank you.
0: Yeah, Uh, absolutely. Uh, Thank you. Thank you both. Um, whether it's the, the economic circumstances or just the, the inevitable demographics, African countries will play a major driving role of politics in the 21st century, uh, and I'm glad we have an opportunity to, to talk about that and how Canada can effectively engage with that reality. Thank you both, and for everybody who's listening, I hope you enjoyed this, this discussion of, of uh, Canada-Africa relations. Please leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Share this episode. Uh, And we'll be back with another episode in two weeks.